Well, I want to extend a special welcome to those here uh, who are here for the very first time. Um, you could have gone anywhere this morning, and yet you're here, and we count that as a real privilege to serve you in any way we can. Um, uh, I, we offered to you the invitation to come talk to me or any one of the elders. Uh, I'd ask the elders to be up here up front afterwards. If you or anyone else wants to meet, talk with an elder, get a chance to pray, find out who we are, what we're doing as a church. But uh, again, thank you for being here. It's a, it's a joy to be able to serve you in any way we can. And I don't know how you feel about church history personally, but I remember the summer when church history literally changed my life. Uh, and in particular, it was a Scotsman that did so. I was teaching a church history class at the church in Spokane, and I was preparing to lecture on the early centuries of the expanse of Christianity to uh, Great Britain when out of nowhere, Patrick, otherwise known as St. Patrick of Ireland, arrested me. Born, we think, around 389 A.D. in Scotland, Patrick was raised by loving, believing parents who always faithfully tried to point their son to Christ. His father was a deacon. His grandfather was an elder in the local church, and so Patrick was always just kind of there at the church. He was always just exposed to the warm rays of Christianity with sermons and potlucks and flannel graphs. I mean, typical, typical church kid kind of stuff. And yet, be that as it may, d- despite the faithful influence of Christianity in his life by his family and, and his family's efforts to nurture him in the faith, Patrick was, by his own secret admission, an unbeliever. He didn't believe. I mean, he was a, he was a nice enough kid, I, I suppose, and he kept the rules and didn't get into much trouble, but at the end of the day, he had zero interest in Christianity. For Patrick, the Bible was bland and Christ was boring and coming to church on a Sunday morning was a tooth-extracting, agonizing experience. And yet, and yet, Patrick's life would not be boring for long. Because the thing about Great Britain in those days is that even though Patrick's home was loving and caring and supportive and affirming, uh, Britain in those days was not a great place to raise a family. Um, Uh, previously uh, protected, or should I say, ruled by Rome. When the Romans moved out, the trash moved in. The land was filled with thugs and scoundrels and gangsters. I mean, the mafia essentially ruled the land. Just like in Israel, when when, uh, they had no king, every man in Britain did what was right in his own eyes. Then any parent's worst nightmare, here's Patrick by himself doing whatever it is that 16-year-olds do in those days when all of a sudden out of nowhere he was abducted. He was was kidnapped by a a gang of of Irish thugs and and, um, slave traffickers and they threw him in the hole of a ship with a bunch of other captives and they took him to Ireland and sold him into slavery, which unlike today was not a vacation destination. Ireland was not a place that you went to voluntarily. And for six agonizing years, Patrick was kept as a slave in absolutely miserable conditions. The the details are pretty scant here, but he was malnourished and poorly clothed and and lived in in almost complete isolation except for the brief exposure that he had to the master that owned him. I mean, here he is. He he should be going to football games on Friday nights with his friends, but instead of that, he's he's doing child labor half-naked and malnourished, cleaning up animal filth in a barn under the watchful eye of of whoever it is that, that owned him. And you see, that's just the thing. You see, in God's sovereign, loving providence, this captivity, this abduction, this slavery was a providence used by the Lord to awaken him. You see, all the truth that his parents had tried to pour into him for years and years all of a sudden began to spring with life. All of a sudden, this was real. All of a sudden, this was true. All of a sudden, this had meaning. All of a sudden, Jesus Christ meant everything. You see, this was the means that God used to push Patrick to absolute desperation. God literally stripped him of everything that makes life even somewhat tolerable and in that absolute state 
of misery Patrick believed. He said this about his experience. He said, and there in Ireland, the Lord opened the understanding of my unbelieving heart that I might at last remember my sins and be converted with all my heart to the Lord my God who had regard for my miserable state. Somehow, way, he eventually escaped Ireland, fled to France and began and instantly joined a, a monastery and it was there in France, in the monastery, immersed in the scripture, immersed in the, the study of scripture, that there he began to have a burden to return, not to his homeland of Scotland, but to return back to Ireland as a missionary where he had once been held captive as a prisoner, all so that he could free those with the gospel who were enslaved to their sins. Later he said, I came to the people of Ireland to preach the gospel and to suffer insult from unbelievers, which he did. Twelve times, he said, they tried to kill him. Bearing the reproach of my going abroad and many persecutions even unto bonds and to give my free birth for the benefit of others and should I be worthy, I am prepared to give even my life without hesitation and most gladly for his name. It is there that I wish to spend my life until I die should the Lord be pleased to grant it to me. Which is exactly what he did. And what's so gripping to me about Patrick's life is is not his life necessarily, although it is interesting. Rather, what's gripping about his life are the ripple effects of his life. The chain reaction of his life on the Great Commission, because eventually on the island, Patrick established monasteries. Monasteries, which were essentially in that day, seminaries. They were missionary training schools, get this, which not only sent converted Irish pagans to reach the Irish, but they, were even, they even sent converted Irish pagans to reach mainland Europe. And that's not all. And here's the entire reason why I'm telling you the story. Not only did Patrick's monasteries send missionaries to Europe, but they sent missionaries to Scotland, England, France, Belgium, Germany, Switzerland, and even Italy 200 years after Patrick was dead. And you see, when I read that, when I read that in my studies preparing the lecture on church history, it gripped me. It gripped me and I realized that, that is what the church is to be. That is what the church is to become. That is the level to which a church should strive, namely, not only to be in existence and to perpetuate their own little thing, but to be a launch site for global ministry that continues to have a Christ-exalting impact even 200 years after all of us are dead. That's where we're going as a church, to be that, to be that kind of launch site for global ministry. What we're going to be as a church, we're going to be a laboratory. (laughs) A laboratory that grows not bacteria, but grows disciples. Who makes disciples. Who makes disciples until eventually all of God's elect are reached and the plan is over. That's exactly where we're going. And how we get there is, is we make a plan. Let's call it, oh, I don't know, a 20-year plan to change the world. (laughs) A 20-year plan to reach not only Jerusalem, but also Judea and Samaria and even the remotest parts of the earth. So here's where we're going. Our final vision sermon in our series on the vision of our church. Here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see a 20-year plan. A 20-year plan, ambitious though it may sound, to change the world unfolding in four stages and how you can be a part of it. That's where we're going. A 20-year plan to change the world, unfolding in four stages and how you can be a part of it. Now, before I unveil the plan, you remember, don't you, our newly minted mission statement as a church? The thing that drives and defines everything we do, the reason why we exist as a church, and why we exist is to do three things. We exist to prize, we exist to portray, and we exist to proclaim. 
the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. That's why we exist as a church. That drives everything that we do. We exist to prize Christ as our supreme treasure, to portray Christ as our life-changing Redeemer, and to proclaim Him as a sin-conquering Savior for the joy of all the nations. That drives everything we do as a church. And that could and should very well raise the question, well, that sounds great, but how are you actually going to pull that off? Put it this way, what are the non-negotiable head-on-the-chopping-block convictions that you have got to have to fulfill your mission as a church? And that's exactly what we covered last week. And it's on the banner outside, the seven non-negotiable convictions, commitments that we have to have as a church. And I'm sure you remember what they are. Number one, to fulfill our mission, we commit to preach the word and sound doctrine. To fulfill our mission, we commit to preach the word and sound doctrine. Why? Because the power is in the text. Number two, to fulfill our mission, we commit to cultivate heartfelt treasuring of the triune God through his word. We commit to cultivate heartfelt treasuring of the triune God through his word. In other words, this is going to be a happy church. This is going to be a joyful church. This is going to be a satisfied church. Why? Because I am persuaded with the more exhilarated with God we become, the more passionate we will be to proclaim him. Number three, to fulfill our mission, we commit to pray with urgent passion for the impossible. We commit to pray with urgent passion for the impossible, which means that we understand that prayer is not only for our own personal devotional delight. It is that, but it's not only that. It is the way that God unfolds his plan in the world. God unfolds the plan that he has predestined through the prayers of his people. Number four, To fulfill our mission, we commit to equip the saints. To fulfill our mission, we commit to equip the saints, which is straight out of Ephesians 4. And all equipping is means reinforcing your lives with bulletproof steel of Scripture so that you not only think biblically, you live biblically. We want to help you be who you are in Christ. Number five, we commit to fulfill our mission. We commit to speak the truth to one another in love from Ephesians 4, verse 15. And what that means is, is that church health is not based primarily on its programs, but on its commitment of each member to make the spiritual growth of one another their top priority. All it is, is faithful, intentional investment of the word of God into one another's lives, mutually encouraging one another as blood-bought comrades in the Great Commission. Number six, to fulfill our mission, we commit to love one another with radical affection. To love one another with radical affection. I mean, it is so interesting to me. If you remember John 13 in the, what's known as the upper room discourse, and, and you, you remember that Judas leaves, and the first thing out of Christ's mouth when Judas leaves is that he tells the disciples that they should and must love one another. What is the significance of that? I wouldn't have began with that. I would have began with the glories of the Trinity and the plan of salvation, and he begins with love. The point is, without love here in this room for one another, there is no mission. And number seven, to fulfill our mission as a church, we commit to proclaim the gospel both locally and abroad. Both locally and abroad. You see, it's not either or, it's both and. Local and global. Jerusalem and the ends of the earth. Our mission is to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples that plant churches that make disciples and on and on it goes until all of God's elect are reached and the plan is over. That's who we are, and if it's not, that is who we must become. So all of that, all of that, that mission statement and those seven commitments, those are driving us as a church. Because challenging, or should I say impossible, though all of those things may be, that's exactly where we're going. And and, and as you hear those things, I 
I hope that puts a fire in your souls. I hope that thrills you. I hope that exhilarates you. I hope that excites you to see because if we commit to these kinds of things, we will be a church invincible. Now, one more little parenthesis before I begin to unfold the 20-year plan to change the world. Um, If if we're going to be like Patrick and, and reach the Irish, so to speak, we should probably know something about the Irish. And by that, by that I mean the DFW area. You see, I don't know if you realize this, that the area in which we live and minister, it has unbelievably overwhelming challenges that will probably astonish you. And yet, and yet, this has profound potential that will really, really excite you. So, for instance, uh, you know that we are nestled right now into the heart of the Metroplex, which is home to 7.5 million people. 7.5 million people live in this area. I was at a pastor's fellowship this last week, and a bunch of other pastors from Arlington and Fort Worth, and Mayor Williams was there, and uh, he said that by the year 2030, the area will expand to about 11, 12 million people. So this, this, this place is growing at an exponential rate. But of those 75 million people, get this, 78% of the population here professes Christianity. 78% professes Christianity. That's 5.8 million people who claim some kind of allegiance to Christianity in this area. And, and we hear that 78% and we're kind of tempted to think, well, job's done. I mean, we're just on cleanup duty. We're just, we're just picking up the crumbs of the Great Commission. I mean, there's no one left to save here. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride till Jesus comes. And yet, it's probably a little too early to break out the champagne. Because, because in that 78%, um, that is using the broadest definition of Christianity, including Catholics, Mormons, and Jehovah's Witnesses, and all the denominations that back in the 20s gave up believing in the Bible. Set decades ago, stopped believing in the Bible. So, so we're not actually dealing with a solid 78%, are we? If you want to know where I got the, the stats from, I can give you the, the link afterwards. But, but there's more. And, and call it bad news if you like. I call it strategic news should, that should awaken us to the mission to which we're called. In the DFW area, 62% of the population feels that their spiritual beliefs are, and I quote, very important to their lives. 62% feel that it's very important. That still sounds pretty good. But what it has to mean is that of the 78% who profess Christianity, there is a portion of that 78 who do not feel that their spiritual beliefs are really that big of a deal, which doesn't surprise me at all because my neighborhood is filled with those kinds of people. I mean, sweet people, don't get me wrong, they are sweet and kind and on the surface moral people who keep the rules, but from what I can tell, they live their lives as though God makes zero difference. There's more. Of the 7.5 million people who live in the DFW area, get this, 41%, only 41% of the area are connected to a local church. Only 41%. That that has to mean that there is a discrepancy between those who profess Christianity and those who are actually affectionately connected to a local church. I mean, that that makes zero sense biblically. 31% of the DFW actually reads the Bible once a week. Once a week. 49% of the population never reads the Bible. I don't mean this in some box-checking kind of righteousness thing at all. I'm just, just making observations here. What that means is, of the 78%, a third of them read the Bible once a week. Two-thirds of them never read the Bible. That's almost two million people in this area who profess Christianity in some way, and yet the Bible has zero influence on their lives. These are people who are forming beliefs and convictions about eternity, and they don't get their ideas from the Bible. And, and we know that's no exaggeration. Um, here's another one. Uh, the, the Bible Belt-ish DFW population, uh, only, only 37% of this area believes that there is an absolute truth and an authoritative standard for right and wrong. 39% of the entire population believes that there is an absolute truth. Th- that means, uh, compute, just under half 
of all professing believers do not believe that there is an absolute truth. So which means despite Seattle's reputation as postmodern and liberal, the DFW area ain't really that far behind. And again, we know that's true. We know that's no exaggeration because only 39% of this area believes that you should actually take the Bible serious or that you should take it literally. Only 39% believe you should take the Bible literally. If that 78 number, 78% number is legitimate, the number should be way, way higher. So half, half, more than half of professing believers do not think that you should take the Bible literally. The, the news ain't good. It's not good. And yet the number that I found most troubling of all was that 75% of the entire population believes that they're going to heaven. What does that mean? That means that three out of every four people you know believes that they are going to heaven, and yet I'm just asking the question, do they understand the gospel? Do they know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And again, this is not a a works righteousness thing. I'm just saying there is a gaping discrepancy between what people profess and what the Bible says Christianity should be. My point is the work here in this area ain't done. Not by a long shot. Not by a long shot. In fact, I think that the work here in this area has a special heightened urgency about it because there are so many people in this area who think they're okay with God when the reality is that might not actually be the case. The point is, this is a great area to do ministry. This is a strategic area to do ministry. It's like Luther said, if you don't fight your battles where it rages the hottest, you are by definition unfaithful. Well, I believe that we are fighting a battle, one of the places where it rages the hottest. There is incredible breathtaking potential to make an impact for the Great Commission here, especially especially when you consider that the DFW area has the fourth largest, the fourth largest Muslim population in the entire United States. The fourth largest. Also consider the fact that in this area there are 1.6 million Hispanics. There are 79,000 Vietnamese, 54,000 Chinese, 13,000 from India. There are 400,000, almost a half a million college students in this area, many of them from, from all over the United States, some of them from overseas, hundreds and hundreds of them are Muslim. My point is the gods elect the nations are here in this area. I mean, they're out there too, in the nations, but they're also here. They are there for the taking. And my question is, who's going to reach them? If not us, then who? I mean, do we assume that we get a pass because we're kind of a small church with not a ton of resources? No, absolutely not. No way. You see, the invincible purpose of God is that the gospel of Christ spread to all the nations and take root in Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated churches. And I really believe that we can be that kind of church. I think that if we play our cards right, we can be the church, unless Christ should come, that a hundred years from now, this church not only has a mailing address, but this church is increasing in its Christ-exalting influence in the world. Now, speaking of being a Bible-saturated, Christ-exalting church that makes a dent for the Great Commission, that brings me now to the 20-year plan to change the world, unfolding in four stages and how you can be a part of it. So the first stage, number one, first stage of our church to change the world, years one through five, internal impact. Years one through five, what we're going to do is work on internal impact. In other words, what I mean is, over the next five years, what I want us to do primarily, not exclusively, but primarily, I want us to focus on internal impact. What I mean is, and don't take this the wrong way, I want us to learn how to be a church again. I want us to learn how to be a church again. Because the elders and I project that if this church is going to be a launch site for global ministry, 
If this church is going to run and win the marathon of the Great Commission, we had better be in shape first. Or to put it this way, NASA doesn't reach the moon with with rickety rockets and broken computers and half the people showing up for work. They only reach the moon when every bolt is tight and everybody knows what the mission is and everyone is there for their shift. And you see, I want us to build NASA together. A NASA, a launch site for global ministry that reaches new frontiers, that plants new NASAs at those new frontiers, that launch rockets, that build new NASAs, and on and on it goes until the mission is over. Do you see where this is going? St. Patrick of Ireland kind of stuff. There's been a wordy phrase that's been pinballing around in my head for months since I've got here, and it's kind of wordy, but but it's helping me understand where we need to go as a church, and I really believe that it is the secret to long-term impact at our church. Here's the phrase. Ecclesiological health for missiological effectiveness. Ecclesiological health for missiological effectiveness. What does that mean? Ecclesiological meaning church. Missiological meaning mission. The point is, the more healthy this church becomes the more effective we will be for the mission to which we have been called. That's what that means. If you're still there, I want you to look at Acts 2. Acts 2. I want to show you where I get this from in the text. Acts 2, and specifically verse 42. And and, and as you look at the text, I want you to notice the in-house activities that this church devoted itself to without ceasing. Verse 42. And they were devoting themselves continually to the teaching of the apostles and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. There it is. Did you see it? The four internal in-house activities that this church gave itself to without ceasing. They did these four things. Number one, they devoted themselves without teaching to the or without ceasing to the teaching, or you could even say the doctrine of the apostles. What does that mean? That means they listened to a lot of sermons. It means they read the scriptures a lot. They studied theology a lot. They wrestled with doctrine a lot. The apostles were always teaching the word, which if you wondered why it is that we have such an emphasis on doctrine and truth and theology here, if you wondered why it is that the word of God has such a supreme and central place in our church, this is the kind of place that we get it. Acts 2 verse 42, they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. And and have you ever noticed why it's first on the list? What's the implication of that? The implication is, is that it drives everything that we do. What the text says drives everything we do. It's how we learn to do everything else. Number two, you notice that this church devoted itself to fellowship. To, to, To fellowship. Fellowship means that you share something together. It has to mean that these people felt a profound, keen responsibility for one another. In fact, that's what authentic fellowship is, doing the one another's to and for one another. You see, this isn't just hanging out, shooting the breeze, drinking Cokes, eating Cheetos, uh, watching the Super Bowl, making this up here. I don't know if you eat Cheetos. You probably shouldn't, but man, they're good. Um, that, that's, not what, that's not what fellowship is. Rather, fellowship, get this, is intentional, faithful investment of the word of God into one another's lives. That's what it is. And what this implies is that these people were always together. They were always together. They knew enough about one another to be able to speak the word of God into one another's lives. They were there on Sundays and throughout the week, and probably their equivalent of small groups, missing the corporate gathering together on a Sunday just wasn't an option for these people. And number three, this church devoted itself to the breaking of bread. 
They devoted itself to the breaking of bread, which is a first century way to say that they ate together in each other's homes, which tells us one thing. This church was a hospitable church. See, this church understood that the mission advances through warm meals and cups of coffee and plates of apple pie and soft couches and inviting people into your homes and sharing your very lives with them. Finally, number four, this church never closed, open seven days a week, continually devoted itself to prayer. Literally, the prayers, plural. Meaning what? Meaning this church prayed a whole bunch. Why? Because they understood. They understood that prayer is the means through which the power of God is unleashed in the world to advance the mission. You see, here's here's my point. It's that kind of stuff I mean when I talk about internal impact. That. This is who we must become. I'm not saying that doesn't exist in some measure here. I'm saying for the next five years, these are the kinds of things that we should and must cultivate because I'm convinced that if the next five years we take the time to grow in internal impact, if we take the time to uh, uh, preach a lot and study a lot and read a lot and eat a lot and pray a lot and have each other in one another's homes a lot, we will have a profound impact in the world. And I can imagine, I can imagine someone saying, that's not true. That is not true, Jared, because if all you do is, is focus on internal impact and, and cultivating body life together, if that's all you do, you're not going to make any impact. You will reach no one. You will be the same old church you were when you started because all you're doing is working on internal impact, to which I say, that sounds logical, but that's not what the text says. Because look down at verse 47. It says that they were praising God and having favor with all the people. Here it is. And the Lord was adding to those who were being saved day after day after day. That's the Greek construction that it indicates. It was day after day after day. People were getting saved. What was happening? What was happening as people craned their necks to peek inside the church and to see what was going on in this new community of people who believed in Jesus, the Messiah, what they saw was so compelling and new and and incredible and supernatural and undeniable that when they heard the teaching and saw the fellowship and heard the prayers and saw the eating and the connection that people had in the church... They could not help but want to be a part of it, and they got saved. Do you feel this? This is real. This really happened. And I believe that we can be this kind of church. And so, here they are. I'm going to give you seven, this will not take long, seven compelling initiatives to help us be that kind of church, to help us grow in internal impact. Seven compelling initiatives that I want us to do over the next one to five years. These are the kinds of things we are going to put into place and implement to be a healthy church that changes the world. Number one, we need to, over the next five years, focus on equipping the saints for the work of ministry. We need to focus on equipping the saints for the work of ministry, which we do in various forms. Equipping comes through upfront teaching, comes through small groups. But here at our church, we want to implement equipping classes, which actually started just this morning. It's not too late, by the way, to sign up for any equipping class uh, as well. And, and all equipping is, all that is, is training others to repair others with the word of God, to think biblically and to live biblically. Number two, over the next five years, we want to uh, uh, initiate biblical counseling training. In other words, not only are we going to offer biblical counseling in January, but also I have asked specific people, and I've got a few more people that I'm going to corner you and ask you to do this, but I'm asking specific people to become certified biblical counselors in this church. 
Um, why? So that they can do biblical counseling? Yes, but also so that they can train others to do the same. You see, my dream for this church is that one day every member of this church would have a level of biblical counseling training under their belt. Why? Because the result of that is that we will be an outpost of hope in a world of despair. Number three, ministry teams. Ministry teams. Over the next five years, I want to uh, begin to integrate ministry teams into this church. What that means is create official teams and opportunities for you to serve and utilize your particular giftedness. Many of you are profoundly underutilized. I've had some of you say, well, I'm just, I'm ready to, I'm ready to serve. I'm ready to labor. I'm ready to minister. What should I do? Sounds great. Let's come up with something. So we're going to orchestrate ministry teams because a healthy church is a serving church. Number four, monthly all-church fellowship meals. Sounds small, but this is really significant. Monthly all-church fellowship meals. This is actually Jaime's idea. This is what they did in California. In other words, every month we break bread together because those who eat together advance the Great Commission together, which is what we're doing on September 29th. We will be at the park just down the street eating together. Number five. I want us to cultivate a culture of hospitality. And you, and you see that these things are really organic. There's nothing profound or, or necessarily fireworks-ish about any of this. This is really strategic, very uh, um, organic stuff that we're trying to do. Number five, cultivate a culture of hospitality. In other words, I would love to have arranged a dinner for eight for once a month, that every month eight different people in this church get together, eat together in each other's homes and be able to connect on a level that we would otherwise not be able to, doing exactly what they did in Acts chapter two. Number six, I want in the next five years to begin a women's mentoring program. And I want to call it Titus two. I want to call it Titus 2, because remember in Titus 2, when it talked about older women training the younger women, why, why don't we just start something? Sometime in the next five years, let's, let's start a women's mentoring program where women can be discipled, and then they can be trained to disciple others. That's, ex- that's one of the strategic means to which the Great Commission unfolds. Let's launch that here at this church. Finally, evangelism training. Over the next five years, I want us to do evangelism training, which, by the way, we're going to offer in the spring. But I want to start offering apologetics and evangelism at this church. Why? Because we have the most unembarrassing, shareable message in the world. And we have got to learn to proclaim it in our workplaces, on our campuses, in our neighborhoods, sometimes even in our own families. That's it. That's the next five years at this church. Those kinds of things. It doesn't sound like it's got a lot of teeth. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of fireworks to that, but those are the very kinds of things that the Acts, that the church in Acts chapter 2, that they were doing. And guess what? Guess what? We believe today because that church in Jerusalem set that trajectory, were that launch site for global ministry. And I think you're going to love it. I think over the next five years, if you buy into what we're doing here, I think these will be the sweetest of years at this church for you. Why? Because we will be forging our mission and identity together as a church, as a, as a battalion of blood-bought comrades being a part of the most significant high-stakes mission in the universe. Does that mean that we're not going to reach anybody before five years? No, no, we're not going to do evangelism because we're only focusing on internal impact. No outreach. Of course not. Of course not. We're going to do some things. And I've got a couple ideas of what we could and must do. I'm just saying horse before the cart. We do these kinds of things first, and we will be most strategically primed to make a global impact. So, my encouragement to you is take advantage of everything. Take every class that we offer. Beg for more. Be a part of a ministry team. Be at everything. Help cultivate authentic, vibrant, robust body life because, because if we do that, then we will become the NASA that we want to be. Which brings me to the second stage. The second stage for our church to change the world. Number two, years five to seven. Years five to seven, citywide regional impact. 
In years five to seven, what I mean is, in five years, if we play our cards right, and if we cultivate internal church health, if we cultivate the Acts 2 kinds of things that, that made them and will make us a healthy church, I believe that we will be ready, more than ready, to make a citywide, regional impact in this area. And, and, and by five to seven, I mean that in five years, I believe that we can, we can implement strategic ways to reach the entire city. Because, again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do anything before then. I don't mean that at all, because we can and we will. I'm just saying a big, giant heave-ho as a church, a big evangelistic blitz to try to rally ourselves to reach the city, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. I, I wish we were, but we're not. And that's okay. We've got to start somewhere. And so we'll start with internal church health. But I don't think we have the infrastructure as a church, nor perhaps the spiritual maturity or the momentum to pull off some big evangelistic venture to reach the entire city. But I think we can get there. In fact, I know we can. But in addition to personal evangelism, which we should all be doing, I want to do these kinds of things in five years. I think we'll be ready to do these kinds of things. Number one, I want us to do citywide theological training. This is actually Tommy's idea. Citywide theological training. In other words, we do theology seminars in here in the evening. Well, why not open those up to the whole city? Why not open it up to, to the whole city and, and allow the truth of God's word to strengthen and equip people, even from other churches? What if we did an annual theology or biblical counseling conference where we equip other pastors and leaders to train their own people better in the word? Why not? I mean, if we could strengthen other churches in this area, that's a huge win for the kingdom. Agreed? Number two, I want to start an outreach ministry to moms. In five years or so, uh, I think we could start an outreach ministry to moms, kind of like mops, but maybe a little more Christ-centered and, and, and biblical. I believe that in five to seven years, we could start our own version of mops because that is a profound and strategic way to rub shoulders with and integrate unbelievers into your lives. I've seen it done before, and when it's done right, it is incredible. Number three, how about a refugee outreach ministry? This could actually probably start before five years, but what if we got connected to an organization here in the city, somewhere in the city that, that takes in refugees, many of them being from Muslim countries? And what if we signed up to help teach ESL classes? What if we signed up to be conversation partners where we meet these people who are trying to learn English and we meet with them and then we can have them in our homes and we could be in their homes? I mean, do you see how strategic this is? What if, what if we held free workshops where you take your particular trade, the thing that you're really good at, and you teach, you teach refugees how to do the particular thing that you're good at? I don't know, name it. Uh, plumbing, welding, sewing, cooking, whatever it is that you're good at, and we just, we just hold workshops for them. Now, they did those things in their country. It's not like they don't know how to do them, but this is a completely different context. Everything, all bets are off. Everything is different. I think we need to start having refugees into our homes. Maybe not to live there, but on a somewhat regular basis to have them in our homes and serve them warm meals and to love them and care for them. I really believe that we need to be the community that the Muslim community pretends to be, but they can't be. There, there is a myth that, that the Muslim community is really tight. It's not. I have, I have seen the inside of that community, and they're not tight. They're not. There's suspicion, there's fear, there's all sorts of hostility between different countries. The church can be that atmosphere of hospitality that no other community could ever be, and I want us to be that. Number four, I want us to have a distinct presence on UTA, TCC, and other college campuses. I want us to have a distinct presence on college campuses because I, I really believe that that reaching the campuses is one of the strategic ways to uh, build our church and advance the Great Commission. There's a ministry right now that uh, downtown, they have this for, for UTA students, they, they serve free food, and, and I think we could and should do that. Maybe we partner with them, but maybe we do our own thing. I've always wanted to do this thing called the Oropagus. Remember Acts 17? And Paul shows up, and there's all the philosophers and teachers and educators, and, he sh and then all they did was they kind of debated about truth issues. Paul shows up, talks about Christ and the resurrection, and it starts this whole firestorm of, 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 of controversy and conversation. What if we did that? 
the Oropagus. We launched the Oropagus downtown, have UTA students feed them tons of food, talk about truth, look for opportunities for the gospel. I think we could do it. Maybe not now, five to seven, I believe so. I think we could begin hosting, you could begin hosting international students in your home. There's all sorts of programs where you could sign up to be a host family, maybe not for a year, but for a weekend a year. Sarah and I would do this with Japanese students back in Spokane, and every single time we got multiple opportunities to proclaim the gospel with people who had never heard the gospel before. These are unbelievers in your homes. Unbelievable. Number six, got a couple more here. Uh, I want three to five people in this church to be certified biblical counselors in five to seven years. I want three to five people. I don't know why I picked that number. It could be more for all I care. That's great. I'm just, I'm just saying this seems doable. Three to five people who are certified biblical counselors. And, and I want to offer biblical counseling to the city. I want us to open that as a service to the city because in Spokane, this is what we did, and there were more people who got saved through the biblical counseling ministry than through any other outreach opportunity that we had at our church. I think we should do that. We could do a VBS, and again, a VBS is really effective when you reach not just kids but entire families through those kids. I want to begin a pastoral ministry training program for guys interested in being pastors or missionaries. And then I want to do kind of a catch-all category, community infiltration. All of these we can do before five years, but I want to just begin to infiltrate the community in maybe some out-of-the-box ways. For instance, this was Sarah's idea. Uh, Strategic park barbecues. We go to a park and we invite every person in the park to come eat with us. Seriously. And then I'll stand up and share the gospel. Why not? Why not? We're there. They're there. Open air preaching. Why not? Let's give it a whirl. Uh, outreach comfort, concerts. Luke and the others, they're, they're basically professional musicians. I think we could do something with that. How do we get into local elementary schools? All sorts of opportunities to reach people there. This one's a little odd. Uh, how about an undercover bowling team? <laughs> I grew up going to a bowling alley. It it was not the most pleasant experience, but years later, now I see in God's providence why I was exposed to that. Because what if four people from this church formed a bowling team with the intention of reaching out to lost people? Think about it. Every week, you're with four different people. Imagine that. I mean, maybe you'd be the most hated team in the whole bowling alley because what you do is you proclaim the gospel every week and you bowl really terribly, but who cares? Who cares? What if we did that? Why not? Why not? Now, if I didn't mention your favorite outreach idea, don't sweat it. It's only for the sake of time. If you have other ideas rolling around in your heads, I want to hear them. But in five to seven years, I want to make these kinds of evangelistic pushes, citywide pushes. Third stage, we're almost done. Let's just be a few minutes. The third stage of our church to change the world, years seven to 10, national impact. These will get shorter because I can't see far ahead in the future or in the future at all. But I think, I think the trajectory, if we play our cards right, in seven to ten years, we will be able to do these kinds of things. Uh, one idea that sounds a little sort of blah and, and not really that effective, but um, I want to train and send church strengtheners. What I mean is, um, some of you inevitably are going to have to leave not only this church, but leave Texas, which, from what I understand... Leaving another state from Texas is like almost like committing the unforgivable sin. Is that about right? But, but some of you are going to have to leave for jobs and, and for family. But what if we thought proactively? What if we thought about doing our church in such a way where we equip everyone with the mentality that maybe one day you will have to leave? And what if we invest and train you in such a way so that when you leave, you are high-impact high ministers to whatever church you're going to? In other words, instead of just kind of letting you leave, if we find out ahead of time, we can invest in you and train you so that when you leave, you will be able to immediately strengthen the church of which you are part. Now, that has a lot of ramifications, can't get into the specifics, but I want to be proactive. In other words, when we set, if you have to leave, I want to send you and have you be an extension of our church across Texas and in other states. Uh, number two, uh, I want to send men to seminary. I want to send men to seminary. I am literally, I and like 40 other men um, are the product 
of an entire church, entire church families that invested in me and these other men, had us into their homes. I am the product of a church whose elders felt the weight of the mandate to train men because lives depend upon it. You see, seminaries don't make pastors. Churches make pastors, and you are a part of that. You are all trainers of pastors. And so I'm praying for three to five guys who maybe don't even go to our church yet, that they will become part of a pastoral ministry training program, which doesn't even exist yet. And five to seven years after they get here, I want to send them, send them off to seminary to get advanced theological training so that they can make disciples who plant churches, who make disciples who plant churches, and on and on it goes until the mission is over. That, that is biblical. Second Timothy 2. We don't have time to look it up now, but it's generational, exponential impact training men because lives depend upon it. And then uh, number three, um, I want to be eventually a biblical counseling center that certifies biblical counselors. I not only want to do biblical counseling, I want some of those who are certified now to offer training and so that people can even, even out of state could come here and get certified in biblical counseling training. Will that happen? I don't know. I don't know, but I think if we play our cards right in seven to ten years, that's the kind of church we can become. Fourth, finally, one minute, the fourth stage of our church to to change the world, ten to twenty years, global impact. Global impact. And particularly, I have in mind, one, a church plant or church plants. Now, we're we're light years away from being able to do that. Ten to twenty years, if we play our cards right, I think we could. I think we could. Um, another one. I want to send our first harvest of missionaries. 10 to 20 years from now, I not only want to send our own homegrown missionaries, which means some of the people who go to this church who are kids now, I'm praying for them that they would grow up to be the next crop of missionaries sent out from this church, and I want you to pray that also. Not only do I want to send our own homegrown missionaries, I want our church to be a crowded runway of people who want to be launched overseas, and they want this church to launch them. Planting churches, planting NASAs who send more rockets, who build more NASAs, who send more rockets to reach new frontiers. That is who and what we must become because we're not, we're not interested in living in the glory days of the past. We're not interested in, in being like Egypt and craning our necks to look back at what we had in Egypt that was so good and, and we're, not, we're just not interested in that. Rather, what we're interested in is the vision of Patrick of Ireland to have a global impact even 200 years after all of us are dead. And so my question is, are you with me? Are you ready to be a part of this church to make it a global outpost of joy in a world of despair? Are you ready to make this church a launch site for global ministry? Because that is where we're going, and I cannot wait to see how Christ puts his glory on open display. That's it. That's the 20-year plan to change the world. More specifics and details to come, and I need you to pray, and I'm going to pray right now. Oh, Lord, obviously we are not being presumptuous, Lord, most of these, some of these, or none of these may happen, and we trust you for that, Lord. But we know that since we have your word, that many of these things are possible. They they are necessary. They are not only possible, they are inevitable. If we handle your word and preach the word and study the word and pray like crazy, I am convinced, O Lord, that you will grow this church. Even if we didn't do any program, which we will, but even if we didn't, Lord, I'm convinced that your word has the power to transform us and to multiply us. And so we put all of the eggs of our hope in the basket of the proclamation of your word, knowing, knowing that your word will change us and transform us and grow us and use us to make an impact. Thank you for these sweet people. Thank you for what a a delight it is to be a pastor here to them. Please Use your word, change us, transform us. Let us look to you to do the impossible. In Christ's name, amen.